I never saw the movie Unstoppable. Uh, this was something Scott actually mentioned to me. You recall that? I was looking for a sermon illustration. And I said, you know, there's got to be a movie that has two trains getting ready to collide. And he said, Unstoppable. So I, as I suspected with such a film, there was this, uh, you know, this godlike, omniscient view of the two trains at opposite ends of wherever. I don't know the story, actually. It's based on a true story, but... Because there's going to be this collision is essentially what's going to happen. And, and you, the viewer, are just like subjected to this horror, this anticipation of these two huge objects coming at speed and eventually connecting. You've all seen films like that sooner or later, right? Yeah? You know, the kind of a build up. We're just expecting this collision. Well, in the book of Acts here, the text that we're looking at, we're really seeing the build up to or even the beginnings of a very slow speed collision of very massive objects, spiritually speaking. You may remember from our last time and from the lead up here in the book of Acts that Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. And he's coming and he has this entourage of men who are his co-workers, but they're also the fruits of his ministry. They've, they've come from Asia and they come from Greece and Macedonia and all over where Paul had been. He's bringing them along with an offering, an actual you know, financial uh, offering from the Gentile churches. And he's, I think, that Paul is expecting this. I think the reason he's getting back for Pentecost has to do with the idea of bringing this sort of first fruits offering. But then we, we get there, Paul arrives, and, and none of that part really is played out. Like Luke doesn't really dwell on, on that idea of, of, these, of this first fruits of the Gentile church or of the offering at all. Instead, what we're kind of seeing, and I don't know if you picked up on it or not, is some conflict. Some budding conflict. It doesn't spill out. It doesn't actually uh, become a problem yet. But you kind of watch this thing happening. It's like... It's like the flowing of the Mississippi into the Atlantic, into the Gulf. It's, it's this slow... Have you ever seen a picture of, of, a, of a river as it flows into the ocean? And how sometimes it'll just maintain what looks like a river in the ocean? Like for maybe miles, you'll see like this, this brown water of the river. And for a while, they'll sometimes, depending on the river and where it's located and how it goes... But sometimes that river will stay distinct within the ocean for a time, only eventually, you know, gradually, inevitably, to become one thing. And I think that's a good analogy of what's happening with the Gentile mission, the Gentile church, and then the very Jewish church at Jerusalem. Now, how do we take this to ourselves? Like, how, This is the hard part about preaching through the book of Acts, and I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but everything about the book of Acts is history. It's very much part of the redemptive history of God and the expansion of the kingdom as the kingdom takes ground and so forth. And so on one hand, it's to learn and to observe, and some of it's not immediately reproducible. Like we're never going to have the coming together of the Gentile church and the Jewish church quite the way this happens here. But you know, here's the thing. Paul frequently, in fact, I think I found six times in the New Testament where Paul basically says, be an imitator of me. Be an imitator, not Jay, be an imitator, Paul. Um, and, and just invites people to watch and, and learn from his example. And I think there are, there are applications. So as we're kind of looking at this from the historical vantage point of what God was doing, we're also going to make application to ourselves that I think are legitimate in terms of how did Paul deal with conflict? 
and, and huge, huge conflict, really big, big, big tectonic shifts of conflict. How did he deal with it? And, and we're going to learn from that. So be gracious in conflict for the sake of Christ's people. That's, that's the big idea. And Paul and James here are both actually quite, quite uh, devoted to this. They're good models that we follow. We can learn what it's like when we get into those, how many have ever, ever even heard of a church conflict in your life? Right? It's like, oh man, I could write books, and most of you could. And, and we, so we all know what church conflict is like. And uh, this is not going to be a, a unity at all cost kind of sermon. I'm not, I'm not proclaiming that there are never differences that matter. I'm not saying that sort of thing. I'm not saying compromise your value values. Or, or scriptural integrity. But I am saying to you today that there is a real model here of humble, loving, peace-seeking conflict resolution. And that's what we're going to learn from. Does that make sense to you? Are you with me? Do you want to do that? Do you want to see, maybe, maybe in case we would ever, I, I mean, we've just been blessed never to have any conflict at Grace, but yeah, all right, I, I I lied. I'm going to give you a night today in that, in that regard. But in any case, there's going to be four ways that we can be gracious in conflict. First of all, gladly accept your brothers in the Lord. Gladly accept your brothers in the Lord. Uh, Paul and his entourage arrive. They, you, you recall the whole journey back, you know, the stop at Miletus, and they end up eventually coming ashore at Caesarea after a big, long uh, sh- trip across the Mediterranean, and they stayed at, at a home of somebody by the name of Manasson or Manasson, I don't know how to pronounce it, M-N-A-S-O-N, and, and that seemed to have gone well, and the next day they come to the Jerusalem church, and it says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly, and, and given the fact that there's a collision happening here, and there are, there are points of difference, that's, that's a remarkable statement, they received us gladly, there's not a hint of of hostility. Why would they, they, there be? They knew Paul. They knew, they knew the story better than most, I would assume. I mean, Jerusalem was where Stephen was stoned, and that's where Paul was standing, and they laid the coats at Paul's feet, and they knew of his, you know, of his persecution of the church, then his remarkable conversion, and they knew that he, he was an apostle to the Gentiles, and that God had, had blessed his ministry among the Gentiles, and they receive him warmly. Now, I don't know who those brothers are, but then the very next day, it, I guess it goes into the more inner circle because they come to James and the elders of the church at Jerusalem. No mention at this point of the 12, of the 12 apostles. That's interesting, isn't it? We think that at this point, they have spread out. that They are taking ministry to other areas. You know, and there's all kinds of church tradition about where the various apostles ended up you know, doing their, their ministry and so forth. Of course, James, the brother of John, would be dead by this time. But the rest probably dispersed. And now what you have is James, not James, the one that was put to death. But this is James, the Lord's brother. Are you tracking? I'm, I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you. James, the Lord's brother. Um, he's the one who writes the book of James. He's there with the church at Jerusalem. And we read, after greeting them, he, that's Paul now, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul is with his traveling companions. Luke says they're with us. So we know that as they come in before the elders, it's not just Paul alone, but it's Paul and Luke 
and all the rest of those who had come with them. And this is probably the moment, I would suspect, when Paul gave them the offering that he had brought with him. Logical time when it would have happened. Interestingly enough, Luke doesn't even bother telling them this. Why? I think it's because he's just wanting to concentrate on how they are received, that, that it is brotherly and that this is warm. And that, that, you know, there's all this tension that's building, and it's building in the New Testament. We see it in the book of Galatians, we see it in the book of Acts, and there's all this potential problem and explosiveness here that's happening. And yet, what, what Luke is showing us here, as you get this, this combining of the river and the ocean of it all flowing together, you have warmth and brotherly awareness and acceptance. See, you can have different missions. You can have different ministries. You can have different methodologies. I'm going to say, in some case, you can even have slightly different theology. And you know how I feel about theology. And you know how I feel about doctrine. And those things are very, very important uh, to me. But, in spite of that, we can recognize that some people that aren't maybe 100%, you know, right in our ballpark, right in our neighborhood, spiritually speaking, that they are still brothers. And that we can still affirm them. We can still receive them. Paul was not one to compromise if the gospel was on the line. You know, Paul is able to, when it comes to, for instance, Peter, we have him uh, facing off with Peter at Antioch. He talks about this in the book of Galatians. He was not afraid to say, hey, whoa, buddy, you know, and hold your horses. It wasn't just holding hands and singing kumbaya is what I'm trying to get at. But they received one another with warmth. There was acceptance there. In a different context where Paul has been speaking differently over dietary restrictions, he speaks about bearing with the weak, and he writes, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How do we deal with conflict? So much is about starting from the right place. Like if you, if you look at people and you go, well, they're not even Christians because they think differently about, well, how's that ever going to work out? Now, we don't get, it doesn't mean that every time that there are differences that we can bury our differences and go on in kind of you know, mutual work. That doesn't always happen. Paul and Barnabas weren't able to make that happen. There are times when we have to go into our different areas of ministry. And I comfort myself quite frequently saying, well, you know what? They're in another part of the vineyard. They, they don't work for me. They work for the owner of the vineyard and I the same, and God bless them, and they're brothers, but you know, we, don't, we don't have to be joined at the hip. But we do have to recognize that if they, if they are truly trusting in Christ, that they are brothers, and that's the beginning of dealing with conflict. Yeah? So far, so good? All right. Secondly, rejoice in what God is doing through the ministry of others. We read in verse 19 where Paul reported all that God had done so look, look at how James and the elders at Jerusalem respond. It says, and when they heard it, so they've heard about all that's taken place with the Gentiles, and when they heard it, they glorified God. They glorified God. Perhaps the reason Luke failed to mention the offering is because he just wants to make clear that it wasn't about money in the, in the long run. We don't find out until chapter 24, looking back, that Paul actually did bring an offering with him. But I think Luke wants us to see, first of all, that they, were, that, they, that they were able to support and rejoice in each other's ministry. 
was it, for, for Jerusalem, was that their direct ministry that Paul's reporting on? Were they able to claim any of that? I mean, not really. Not really. Paul, what church was Paul sent out from? I was about to tell you, but I'll just ask it as a question. Do you remember? Church at Antioch. Yeah, it wasn't the church at Jerusalem. It wasn't even a ministry to specifically and primarily to Jewish people like there would have been there in Jerusalem. It was, it was a mixed audience, a mixed mission. It was a different part of the world, different languages being spoken and all the rest. And yet they see the harvest and they give glory to God. And what's their response after they glorify God? They point out what God's doing in their midst. They say, and they said, You see, brothers, how many thousands were among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. Now, before we get to the zealous to the, for the law part, just take in that, that response. What are they saying? They're saying, Good, Glory to God for what he's done there, Paul, in your work. But Paul... You should know that here at Jerusalem, we've not just been stuck in one place. I mean, yeah, we are in one, in, you know, physically in one place on a map, but God's been doing great things. Thousands came to the Lord at Pentecost, and many thousands more thereafter. There are thousands and thousands of Jews who are part of the church. Before we start getting to the conflict part of that, look at what is evident here. God has been at work in two, I won't say diametrically opposed, because you couldn't quite say it that way, but two very, very different kinds of ministry, different kinds of churches. Look at what Paul writes to the Galatians. And remember, that's the same book where he, where he says he took issue with, with Peter. But he says this, he says, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, who are those? The Jews, right? Um, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Are you getting that? You, are you seeing how there's, there, there's a looking at both missions and both ministries and, and, and giving glory to God for that? Here's Paul right in the middle of show and tell in Jerusalem reporting all that he's done in drawing people to the gospel from the, the Roman Empire. He's got a sampling of his converts there. He's brought this offering to them and yet he is able to kind of stop in his tracks and, and look and affirm what God has done there at Jerusalem. So God's at work through various ministries. God's at work in various places. And it's wonderful. We ought to be able to rejoice in that. That ought to be part of our mindset as we look at other ministries that we may not be directly or immediately part of. You know, like we're, we're tempted as Americans to always be competitive and to think, well, you know, but we're doing a little bit better. You know, we're accomplishing a little bit more. I just think that's, that's kind of wired into our DNA if we're not careful. But, uh, but, but it, is, it is good news if God is bringing people to himself wherever. Harry Truman once famously said that uh, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't care who gets credit. How many have heard that quote? And it's true, isn't it? When we think about who gets credit, we get very, very focused and very selfish and very self-centered. But if we just go, you know what, the, the goal is that the kingdom of Christ is proclaimed among all peoples and that people come to faith through hearing of the gospel. If that's what really matters to us, that frees us up in, in conflicts not to make it about us. You see? Yes? You tracking? Okay. Um, 
I'll give you a little homey example here close to home for me. There's a kid that I've mentored uh, for the last four or five years. And that's been good. It's been rewarding. I've just put a lot of time into him. And uh, didn't really know whether he was a believer. Did not uh, have strong suspicions of that. And I've been kind of over time looking for ways of talking to him about the Lord. And very recently, I realized he's been going to Wednesday Youth Group, which is great. And you're thinking, wait a second, do we have Wednesday Youth Group? No, we don't. Not really. We have a Awana on Wednesday night, and there is a youth portion of that. But, uh, but our youth group meets on Sunday evening. He's going to a different church, is my point. Now, where would I have him? Right here, where he'd get good theology, you know, and the right stuff. And, and I would. I, I'm just being honest. I'm, you know, I'm just, and, and, you know, I, I would probably wish it was some other church than the one that he happened to end up at. But you know what? I'm still thanking God for it. Isn't that, I mean, it's just an amazing thing. You know, however different doctrinally I am with, with this church on certain things, I know that he's hearing about the Lord and there's people around him who have genuinely trusted Christ and know him as Savior and, and, he, and he's getting another influence in his life for that. And for that, we give God credit. Thirdly, third Lincoln, take a problem-solving approach to conflicts. So uh, James states the issue at hand is he sees a potential blow up which is you have thousands and thousands of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who are zealous for the law now what does that mean that they are zealous for the law it means that though they have trusted in Christ as their Savior, they have recognized him as the Messiah. They believe in the gospel of Christ's sin, uh, death for sin, his, his, his burial, his resurrection. Yet at the same time, they are still really with both, you know, both hands firmly white knuckle gripping every bit of the outward forms of Judaism. Think about this for a moment. The temple is still standing at this point. It is, it is still there. You still have the Levitical priesthood. You have all of the elements of, of the, the, the Jewish ceremonial law and cult and, and sacrifice and everything that goes with it. You can have all those things done at the temple that you always could have done. You could celebrate Passover. You could get a lamb. You could have it sacrificed. You could have your child. It was a one-stop shop. You could have them circumcised. You, you could do any and all of those things. And as they were trusting in Christ on the one hand and meeting with the church, they were still very much engaged in, in Jewish religion. Um, this is probably during Pentecost of 57 AD, give or take, but probably around 57 AD. Do you know when the destruction of Jerusalem came? 70 AD. So how, we're talking about a baker's dozen here of years left for the existence of that. In other words, what you're looking at here is a unique historical moment in the life of the church that is not going to be repeatable. And, and, and a lot of things are happening. All these rituals that were, that were being done and could be done at the, at the temple are passing away. And the book of Hebrews tells us that those things that, that, that took place in the temple, they are a shadow of the substance this is a unique time. They're, they got one foot in one camp, one foot in the other. Christ, the Christian faith is this, 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 this gospel of the kingdom is trying to be wedged into old wineskins. 
If you think about the forms of that. The Pharisees, you know, they wanted Jesus' disciples to, to fast. And, 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 he taught, and he gives the, the whole parable of the wineskins at that point. And it's just an inevitability that that is not going to really work on the long haul. James and Paul are not exactly on the same page. When you read the book of Galatians, you'll see that. Uh, for instance, Paul relates how at Antioch, Peter came... And initially, he was willing to meet with the Gentiles and have table fellowship with them. But then, Paul says, then some, follow, some believers from the Jerusalem church, friends of James, yeah, FOJs, friends of James, came up from Jerusalem, and then Peter got a little wobbly. He got a little like, oh, I don't know what to do here, because there was, they, they, in Jewish practice, in the, they, didn't, they didn't have table fellowship with Gentiles. And so Peter pulls away and Paul completely calls him on it. He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in there, that means James and Peter, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's another, word, another name for uh, Peter. He said to Cephas, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. So there is a conflict. There is a, a, a problem in the background. But though James and Paul clearly have different perspectives, here in Acts 21, they're united in their desire to try and find a workaround. Yeah? It's a, it's a problem-solving approach. They're not coming at it going, okay, we got our two views here, and they're not, we're not going to be able to get together on this, and you need to back down. And No, you need to back. No, they're coming at it going, how do we get around this? How do we work this out? Uh, James says, What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So though James and Paul agree about the essence of the gospel, this is Jerusalem, there is still a temple. And these Jews are still participating in everything, just like the vow that has been taken by these four men. You know, what's going on there? Uh, you know, they, they've taken a, a vow, probably a Nazarite vow, and, uh, and that has to be completed. The solution, as James sees it, is so that people won't think badly of Paul, and so that the Jewish believers will think that Paul is sufficiently still Jewish enough. If he would just like pay for the offering, because you have to bring offerings when you finish a vow, so you have to have lambs and doves and all those things. Sac so Paul's going to bear the expense of the sacrifices, see? And in that way, that solution is going to allow both camps to be happy with one another. His solution here says nothing about the gospel, but it was going to make Jewish Christians feel better. They're going to feel better. They're going to feel comforted. They're in this wonky, weird place. Again, 13 years, for, hence, a lot is going to change, and a lot of things are not even going to be possible any longer that used to be possible when it comes to their religion, their Jewish religion. But for now, this is like this, it's, it's sort of a compromise. Was this a compromise of the gospel? Was this a compromise of the gospel? I'll let you think about, permeate, you know, on that for a little bit. There was no necessity for Paul to relinquish his outward, you know, commitment to Judaism 
in order to embrace the gospel. If it had been perceived that way, if Paul had perceived that in some way he was short-circuiting the gospel and making the, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross less by virtue of this, he wouldn't have done it. But this, this is a workaround that, that he sees as being practical. Now, are there perils to that kind of... If you just take this principle of, 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 of finding a compromise, solving the problem with some sort of a arrangement like this, is, is there a potential problem if we lift that out and try to just like always make it work quite like that? Well, yeah, if there's a conflict, find a compromise. Not necessarily always the case. It's not always the case. I think you have to be cautious here in reducing it to just a hard and fast principle. But what it, what it reminds us of is, is that we ought to seek, as much as it depends on us, to live at peace with all men, especially in the household of God. And so we should look for... We shouldn't be... We, we're too quick, I think, sometimes to draw swords. I'll give you an example. Um, there are a number of Christian speakers that I respect that get in, and have gotten into trouble from time to time because they've been at a conference and spoken when so-and-so was up at the conference speaking. You know so-and-so? Just insert heret- heretical false teacher there, you know? And then, oh, they'll catch all, you know, a lot of trouble because people say, well, why was he at that? Or why was she at that conference? And so-and-so was there. It's sort of a guilt by association kind of thing. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's not always wise. But you hear those people when they're asked, why did you do that? Why would you get up on the same dais with, uh, with, with this sort of heretical person? And again and again, they'll say, you know what? It was an opportunity to talk about the Lord. It was an opportunity to speak the gospel. And we can sit back there and go, well, was it wise? The point is, we should be charitable toward them. Our, 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 our first instinct should be, hey, they, they may have had a reason. Maybe, maybe, maybe they had it worked out in some, in some fashion. At least we shouldn't go at it with the idea of, man, we got to get in there and fight. Not everything calls for us to get in there and fight. I'll, I'll give you an example. The other day I was uh, visited by a couple Mormon missionaries. And, uh, and so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to talk to these guys. So I went a- a- out and I sat on my stoop and I talked to these two elders. Uh, they were surprised when they found out I was an elder. Um, but, but anyway, I sat there talking to these two. They were trying to get away from me in the worst possible way. And I was kept trying to hold them there. But, you know, I, it hit me at one point. What if somebody drives by right now and they see old Jay sitting out on his porch, like just in this animated, like, smiling conversation with these two Mormons. What would they think? They'd think, oh, he's betrayed the gospel. He's gone over to Mormonism. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, but, yeah, that's, that, there's this instinct to fight. And, and what we should be looking for, if it doesn't offend the gospel, if it, if it doesn't cross that line, then, then we should be looking for solutions to those problems. Finally, make reasonable accommodations to weaker brothers without compromising the gospel. Paul listened to James. There's no pushback whatsoever. There's no debate. James makes it clear that he's clear about the gospel. Apparently, Paul didn't feel that way at Antioch, the Galatians story. But here, James is like, okay, let me put your mind at ease. Remember what we decided back in Acts chapter 15? You remember that? About what we'll ask the Gentiles to do? Just... That's good enough. They, you know, they don't have to satisfy anything. It's, it's grace through faith. It's, it's Christ. 
you know, they don't need to be circumcised or anything else like that. So he's making, he makes it clear that he's solid with the gospel. And from there, though, Paul does exactly as, uh, he does exactly as James suggests. It says, Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, and giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offerings presented for each one of them. And Christians have struggled to understand, why is Paul doing this? Why was he willing to go so far? Here and other places. Like Paul, one minute, it, it, it feels like he's all the way over here and it's grace and it's, you know, he's, he's got problems with the circumcision party and the Judaizers on the one hand. The next minute he's, he, he pulls one where he's like doing a vow and he wants to get back to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And you're like, how do you get these, all these things together under the same, you know, with the same guy? In Acts 15, he's going to the mat, fighting for the Gentiles, saying they do not need to be circumcised. And warning people that if you start putting circumcision in there, you're going you're to effectively you know, rid the gospel of its power. And then within a few verses in Acts chapter 16, he's taking Timothy and circumcising him. And you say, well, how, how does that all fit together? And here's the thing. Paul had the freedom not to let his freedom bind him. And uh, I didn't come up with that, by the way. I, I'm, I'm not that smart. But somebody has said that, and I, and I just latched on to it. Paul had, had the freedom of conscience not to be bound by his own freedom, but for the sake of others and for the sake of their consciences to do things that he wouldn't have otherwise do. His line was the gospel. He was willing to participate in these Jewish practices if it did not set aside the message of the cross and salvation apart from the law through grace. He seems to have regarded such brothers that, that did, the ones that really were just adamantly concerned about these things, he seemed in his letters to regard them as weaker brothers. As weaker brothers. He says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, to the, and he's talking, it's in the context where he's talking about how to deal with weaker brothers. He says, to the Jew I became as a Jew. It's funny because Paul was Jewish. but To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So clearly Paul didn't really regard himself quite the way James was putting him forward as being completely you know, under the law in that way. But he's willing to put himself under that law for the sake of the gospel. Paul didn't just care about winning arguments, he cared about winning souls. So when it came to rituals and food ordinances, he could say this. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for everyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but, what you, but uh, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Bottom line, accommodate the weaker brother. Act in love. Don't compromise the gospel, but act in love. There, that, there, those are kind of the reasonably clear lines in the midst of a lot of gray areas. And there, trust me, in the church there are a lot of gray areas. There are a lot of areas that are gray where we don't always agree. But we need to love one another, accommodate weaker brothers in the faith, and at the same time hold forth and keep the line of the gospel. 
And that's the gospel we share with you today. Isn't it kind of cool? If you're, if you're here and you do not know Christ, um, there's something very, very awesome about the fact that the same gospel that Paul took to all of those regions, you know, and he was bringing back all of this entourage of, you know, the first... And there in Jerusalem, that same gospel had won thousands and thousands of Jewish people to the church, to Christ, that that same gospel is the gospel that we preach today. 2,000 years later, it's the same gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world and died for sinners, sinners like you, sinners like me, that he might win unto himself a people for God, a people zealous for good works. Let him win you today. Let your heart be captured by the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and become part of his people. And we will, uh, we will welcome you. Let's pray. Lord, we do know in the church, in the history of the church, that, that collisions and conflicts have happened time and time again. And Lord, some of them were unavoidable and some of them probably very avoidable, but, but in our own sinfulness, we, we, didn't, we didn't hold to your word as we should. So help us to, to, um, to be like Paul, to have that heart, that really desires peace, that desires, um, that desires um, to, to have that reconciliation front and foremost. And, and Lord, give us, give us that wisdom. Give us the wisdom. Even if we can't go together as, as Paul and Barnabas had to eventually separate, Lord, even if we're not able to work exactly in the same part of the vineyard, Lord, help us to have the right attitude to, to receive others who are different than us as brothers and and to glorify you and rejoice in the fruit that their ministries are bearing. And Lord, help us to be humble and to, to be peace-seeking as we live out the days that we have and do the ministry that you've called us to do. And we pray, Lord, that there would be fruit. We pray that as at Jerusalem and um, throughout the Gentile world, that, uh, that we will see fruit from the gospel here in Great Bend, Kansas. We pray that the gospel will have power and that it will win people to itself. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.